I want to, first of all, thank you all for letting me be here today. I love opening the word and especially meeting other brothers and sisters in Christ. And my family would have loved to have joined me, but my, my little seven-month-old daughter is fighting her first actual sickness. It's been, uh, it's been, she's been very well protected from germs over the last little while, as you can imagine. Um, but, but they can't be with us today, unfortunately. But thank you for letting me come and, and, and be with you today. It, it's a pleasure. It's a joy. I want to start off by uh, telling you a bit of a story. In, um, in, in the year 2013, so eight years ago, there was a man named Fauja Singh who ran a 6.25-kilometer race, competitive race, and he finished it in an hour, 32, second, or 32 minutes and 28 seconds. Now, if you're a runner, you, you look at that time and that distance, and it's not all that impressive. But that kind of changes when I tell you that at the time of running the race, Fauja Singh was 101 years old. 101 years old. He had begun running competitively, get this, when he was 89 years old. And so in those 12 years, he managed to complete not just start, but complete and train for eight competitive races. Now, this kind of a story uh, is, is shocking and amazing, um, and it tells us a lot of things, but one of the things that it, that it teaches us is that you're never too old to take on new challenges. You're never too old to grow. This story obviously represents this principle on a physical level, but I think it's also true of us spiritually. It doesn't matter how long you've spiritually been alive. It doesn't matter how long you've known Jesus or have been a regenerate person. It's never too late for you to continue to push and reach new heights of sanctification as you walk with him. And unfortunately, I think it's easy for us to get stuck in a different kind of pattern or mindset as followers of Christ. You know, we come to Christ, we're passionate, we're driven for the kingdom, and then somewhere along the line, it, it becomes easy to get complacent. Whether you've been a follower of Christ for five years or for 50 years, it can be easy sometimes to slip into a kind of spiritual autopilot and lose sight of the goal. But we're called to something different, aren't we? We're called to never stop growing in this life, to never stop pursuing sanctification and Christ-likeness. Those who do this, those who live this kind of way, go on to do spectacular things for Christ's kingdom and for his glory, whether they, whether they become known to men or not. And those who don't live this kind of a life often wind up living lives of spiritual mediocrity, wasting much of what God has given them in their life. God doesn't want that for you. God doesn't want that for me. He doesn't want that for his church at large. And, and you know, I, I'm, I'm a discipleship pastor. That's my role at the church that I come from. And, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff. I spent a lot of time thinking about how we, as a collective body, can do a better job at, at spurring one another on toward love and good deeds and encouraging one another to grow up in Christ. And the answer that, to that question is really important to me, and I hope it is to you too. Our text this morning is going to help us discuss these things well. Growing up, growing up in Christ, that is Paul's concern as he writes this text in Ephesians, and it's the focus of what we're going to be talking about today. So if you have your Bible, open up please with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be starting in verse 7. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. I'll give you a second to get there. Hear the word of God. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it also mean but that he had descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles and prophets, the, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part, part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. In the first section of this text, Paul speaks to us about a number of things, and, and all of these things, I believe, serve the purpose of giving us one fundamental message, and that's this. You have been equipped to grow. You have been equipped to grow. So in other words, God hasn't just given us this task of, of becoming holy as he is holy, of being shaped into the image of Jesus Christ, of growing up in the faith. He hasn't just simply given us this task and left us to our own devices. No, how cruel would that be to us feeble, sinful creatures? No, he's given us the command, but he has also equipped us with everything that we need to accomplish it. So, so how? How exactly have we been equipped? What does Paul tell us in this passage? He tells us a few things. The first way that God has equipped us is that he's given us all spiritual gifts. Listen again to verse 8. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captive and he gave, and he gave gifts to men. This is a kind of curious start to the passage because in the passage right before it, Paul spends a lot of time talking about unity, our oneness. We have one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. And now in this passage, he starts this section off by talking about what makes us all different, the gifts that Jesus gives to us. He can do this because the diversity of gifts that he's talking about all serve still to, 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 to advance the unity and growth of the church. He quotes here Psalm 68, and it's a psalm about God saving his people from their enemies. And the basic picture being painted here is Jesus Christ as conquering warrior king. It said he has led a host of captives. This is, this is a, a, a pretty common ancient world imagery that when you conquer a people, you lead them captive. And that's what it says Jesus has done. But that description is followed up by this second phrase, which is kind of curious. It says, and then he gave gifts to men. 
In the ancient world, those who had been conquered would come to the conquering king and pay homage to him, give him gifts to represent his power, right? This, this is the opposite. Jesus defeats his enemies, and then what does he do? He doesn't sit on his throne and accept gifts. What does he do? He gives gifts to men. He gives gifts to men. In other words, us, the church, we are the benefactors of Christ's conquering victory. This is the grace of Jesus given to each one of us according to the measure of his gift. That's speaking about gifts in the church, a variety of gifts in the church. And Paul teaches this kind of thing elsewhere. God's intention and practice of giving a variety of spiritual gifts to his children for the sake of accomplishing his mission. If you're a follower of Christ, and here's the ultimate point, if you're a follower of Christ, God has given you unique gifts, affirmations, abilities, passions, opportunities that nobody else quite has. You're a unique person with a unique ability to affect the kingdom of God in a specific way, and that's a part of how he grows us together. He puts all the pieces where they need to be. He's equipped us like a, like a puzzle of gifts to be able to grow in Christ. The second way he equips us is with power. Again, this, this picture is painted of Christ as this powerful conqueror, and it keeps on going. I'll start back in verse 8 again. Listen, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then it continues. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. These verses can be difficult to understand. In fact, scholars widely differ on what they think Paul is trying to say here. But I believe he's talking about, when he speaks about the descent of Christ, Paul is talking about his victory over the dark spiritual forces and death itself. This is something that the Ephesians worried quite a a great deal about. From what we can tell, Ephesus was a very spiritually dark place, something Paul would encourage them through throughout the letter of Ephesians. He, he, He many times points to the supremacy that, and, and sovereign rule of the power of Christ that he has over these dark spiritual entities and worldly powers that threaten the church and her mission. Now, as he makes clear here, Christ descended, defeated his enemies, and is now ascended, sitting on his throne, ruling over human history and ruling over even the heavens. The heavens, it's a spiritual term for the spiritual realm, both good and evil. He reigns. There is not a power that can dethrone our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Ephesians, and here's the point, they don't need to be afraid. They don't need to be afraid. Paul is trying to help them come to a knowledge of the fact that Jesus is making all things new by his own authoritative power and that nothing can stand against him accomplishing his goals. And this is helpful for us as we think about growing in Christ, as we think about what it means to grow up. If we're honest, spiritual growth can be a struggle sometimes. Sanctification can be hard. 
There are obstacles. We get distracted. We get unfocused. Sometimes we fall into sin that it feels like we'll never be able to get out of. The world, the flesh, the devil, they put up uh, obstacles, fences, walls, hazards in order to trip us up. And sometimes it causes us to feel so burdened and weary on the journey. Sometimes it makes us feel like we just can't keep fighting. That's our experience, and I know that you've experienced that at some point or another in your walk with Christ. It's easy in those times to forget what Christ has done. It's easy to forget who he is. It's easy to forget that he sits on his throne. It's easy to forget that he has promised us many things and that he has conquered all of the powers of the world in order to bring them to us. That's easy for us to forget. What we have to remember is all the power and the might of our conquering king stands behind his promise, if we're going to go back to Ephesians 1, to make you holy and blameless before him. That's what Ephesians 1 tells us. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. One of those things is that he saved us for himself, that we would be holy and blameless before him. He said he would do it. And so, in the fight to grow up in Christ, we've been equipped, not just with our own wants and our own desires and our own abilities, but with Christ's universal ruling power. Third, third way he equips us in this passage is with word-driven leaders. Word-driven leaders. He says this in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints. And this is a, this is a lift, list of five gifts that he's, he's speaking about God giving the church. And this list has been analyzed by many people who have derived many different conclusions from it. And I don't want to get into all of the uh, technicalities about this verse. There's plenty we could talk about. What does apostle mean? What do prophets mean? What can we conclude about offices in the church from this? And I think a lot of that is a, is, are, they're good conversations, but they're distractions from what the text actually means for us. Here's what's important. All of these gifts have been given for the purpose of equipping God's people with God's word. Equipping God's people with God's word. Whether you're talking about an apostle as a sent one who's establishing the church in an unreached place, a prophet who speaks a word from God to God's people in a time of need, an evangelist who calls local unbelievers to repentance and faith in the gospel and trains other Christians to do the same, pastors and teachers who shepherd and teach God's word to to their congregations. All of these people are gifted to equip God's people with God's word. These roles in the church, they're not more important than anyone else's role, but they do serve this purpose, to prepare God's people to grow by God's word. So Christ has equipped us with all of these things by giving us spiritual gifts, by undergirding us with his own victorious, conquering power, and by filling our churches with saints who are gifted to nurture growth through word-centered ministry. I hope you're encouraged by that. I hope you're encouraged by that. I hope that when you think about growing up in Christ, which admittedly at times can be hard and sometimes discouraging in the flesh, I hope that when you think about that, you remember God has given you everything you need. 
God's given you everything you need. He's not going to let you slip away. He's not going to let you fall into that sin that you'll never get out of. God's got you. And he's prepared a way for you to be made into the image of Jesus. But more than that, more than just simply his equipping of us to grow as individuals, the passage is going to continue to talk about the fact that you have also been called to grow others. You have also been called to grow others. Listen how Paul ends that fivefold list of gifts. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I want you to notice here, whose job is it to grow the church? Whose job is it to grow the church? Whose job is it to do the work of the ministry, to do the building up of the body of Christ? Is it the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers? Well, they play a part. We've just talked about that. They play a part. But no, it's the job of the saints who are being equipped. It's the everyday person who's sitting in the pew who nobody looks at them as having fancy gifts or puts them up on a pedestal like we do with a lot of our celebrity preachers and pastors and things like that. It's that everyday person who has the responsibility from God to grow and nurture the church. The saints do the work of the ministry. We are all priests in the Lord's new covenant temple, we are not observers. If you are here and you, and you are walking with Jesus, you are a participator in something that he is building. But what exactly is the work of the ministry? How does he define that? Well, he, he goes on to, to define it, to tell us what it is. Let's walk through it. Our goal is clear. We are working towards something. We're working toward attaining something. We want to attain this, the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, we must all be grown in the same fundamental truths of the faith, but most importantly, the truths about the Son of God, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. But lest we think that right doctrine is enough, Paul follows it up by saying that we are built up to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, it's not simply enough to have a technically proficient understanding of who Jesus is or to have the right doctrine or to, to just simply have the right Christology. It's not enough if you don't look more like Jesus every day. If you aren't starting to look like him, it doesn't matter. It's just knowledge. It's not real maturity. Growing in Christ means we begin to think how he thinks. We begin to love the same things that he loves. We, be, we begin to want what he wants, behave how he behaves, and speak how he speaks. That's the goal to be holy and blameless before him. This is the responsibility of every Christian person, again, not just to grow this type of holiness in themselves by the power of God, but to use the power of God to build it in other people. We're building this up in one another. That's what our life is about. 
making disciples, discipling one another in the faith. We have to take this seriously because we know how easy it is to be blown off course by lesser things. And that's exactly where Paul goes next. It's not only, the, the, it's not only when the saints pick up or sorry, it is only, it's only when the saints pick up the work of the ministry, the building up of, of the church, the maturation of other believers in not only doctrine, but also living. It's only then that we're safe from outside influence. Listen, this is the way that we're urged uh, to mature in Christ. This is the reason, rather, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful, and deceitful schemes. This right there, verse 14, that is the alternative to growing up in Christ. That's your other option. There really is no middle ground. If you don't have a firm foundation and rooting in the foundational Christian doctrine working itself out in sanctified living in Christ-likeness, what happens? Something else comes in. Something else will fill that void. And our world spouts many different philosophies that are anti-gospel and anti-God. Some of them even sound pretty nice, but one thing they all have in common is they reject the biblical Jesus. They reject the true way of life. And unfortunately, the church is not immune to these kind of philosophies or ideologies. In every Christian generation throughout church history, there are ways of thinking that are popular within the culture and opposite to the scriptures. And these winds of doctrine and deceitful schemes become very difficult for Christians of the time to discern properly because they're born into it. They're like fish in water who don't know they're wet. As a result, many are tossed to and fro, some to their ultimate destruction. So how do, we devo- how do we avoid this? Again, by taking seriously the task to, to be together as a family, growing one another up in deep theological roots and sanctified hearts. That's why Hebrews 3 uses such intense language saying exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, so that you may avoid the deceitfulness of sin. Christ equips us, and the Spirit helps us to do that. And so God has not only equipped us to grow ourselves, but he's called and enabled us to make our lives about the business of growing one another. I think at this point, we we have yet to get to the uh, most important part of the text, So far, it's all really just been commands that I've been shouting at you, right? Do this, do that. Here's what God wants from you. We've seen some of the external resources God has provided, the urgency of our call to grow each other up. But in the last couple of verses, we're not just called to do the work of the ministry, but we're actually shown how we are to do it. How we are to do it. Paul makes sure that we know this. The gospel is what grows us. The gospel is what grows us. Listen to this. It's such a small phrase, and it can be so easy to miss, but it's really important. Listen. Verse 15, he starts off, rather, and this is as opposed to being, you know, tossed to and fro by the nonsense of the world. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love. 
speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from which the whole body joined together, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I want us to stop and think about that initial phrase. The way that we grow one another up is what? Speaking the truth in love. I think it's critical for us to understand this phrase because oftentimes I think it gets misunderstood. And and when it gets misunderstood, we lose the heart of what we're trying to accomplish in discipleship. When Paul writes about speaking the truth in love, most of us simply think he's He's saying sometimes you have to say awkward, difficult, or critical things to someone else because you love them, right? Like, I love you, but you've got a big problem. You know, the other day, my wife and I were sitting around the house, and she looks at me and starts staring at me, and it was such a nice moment, and I said, what are you thinking about? And she said, you look old, (laughs) which isn't even true, by the way, but anyways, um, and then she backpedaled and said, no, no, you don't understand. There's lines on your face. Didn't get any better. Anyways, that's what we think of when we think about speaking the truth in love, right? I'm going to tell you something. You're not going to want to hear it, but you need to hear it because I love you. Now, don't get me wrong. That's definitely a part of what we do together. Sometimes we do have to say hard things. Sometimes we're going to have huge blind spots and we need our brothers and sisters to come alongside of us and gently, lovingly tell us that we're blind. But speaking the truth in love is not just pointing out a problem in someone else and leaving them to deal with it. Just a few verses later, I want you to look at how Paul first uses the word truth and then how he talks to unbelievers about walking and and, and fighting sin. His solution is not simply to call them sinners and tell them fix it. What does he do? Look down at verse 20. He gives this list of things not to walk in, and then, and then he, just, he says this. That's not the way you learned Christ. That's not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. And then this is really important. As the truth is in Jesus. The truth is in Jesus to put off your old self. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, fight your sin with the knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. This is not the Christ you learned. It's not, here's a list and you're doing the wrong things. Here's a list and these are the right things. It's remember Jesus. Remember who he is. Remember the Christ that you were taught, assuming You heard about him and were taught in him because the truth is in Jesus. The truth that we are to speak to one another is not, hey, here's a terrible problem that you have. That's the truth. I just got to say it. Speaking the truth and speaking it in love is saying, here's the problem in your heart. Let me come alongside of you and speak truths about Jesus into this situation until God transforms you through the gospel. That's what speaking the truth in love looks like. Imagine being diagnosed with an aggressive but operable cancer, okay? And the doctor tells you what the problem is. You see it on the imaging. 
and a surgery would remove it. But instead of performing the surgery, the doctor says, I want you to go home, ignore it, come back in a month, we'll take another picture, I'll tell you how much worse it's gotten. Then you do that and you come back for another month, okay, we're going to take more pictures. You never have the surgery. It gets worse, eventually you can't even deal with it at all. I feel like sometimes we do that with one another spiritually. And a lot of times we call it accountability. You've got an issue, you should fix it. Or maybe if you're more spiritual, it's you've got an issue, so I'm going to quote you five biblical verses that tell you it's an issue and that you should fix it. And then we meet together a week later and I ask you, did it get worse? Is it still there? You really should fix that. There's some value in structure like that. There's some value in asking questions like that. But the best thing and the thing we need to give one another in those moments is speaking the truth in love, speaking the gospel. You can't seem to forgive that person. You're struggling with bitterness. Come along with me. We're going to go on a journey together. We're going to talk about all the ways that God has forgiven you. We're going to talk about the glory of the gospel. I'm going to ask you, think about the ways that you were separated from God. Think about what Jesus did. Think about the preciousness of the forgiveness that you have in Christ Jesus. Let's marvel at that. Let's glory at that. Until forgiveness becomes easy. That's how speaking the truth in love works. You're, you're, you're struggling to find purpose or meaning in your life. Maybe you attached it to a job and now that job is gone. Or you attached it to a person and now that person is gone. And you're really struggling with it. Come with me on a journey. Let's marvel not only at what Jesus has done to make you a child of God, but the immense hope for the future that he's given you, the restoration of all creation, the new heavens, the new earth, the growing and all-consuming kingdom that's being built, and your life, your life is just one small brick in that giant cosmic building uh, project. Isn't that amazing? That's your purpose. That's your meaning. That's your identity as a child of God. The world can't give you that type of identity. Lasting, eternal, cosmic, wonderful. It can't give you that kind of purpose. It can't give you that kind of meaning, even though we try to make it. But the gospel can. I hope you see how this works. Jeff Vanderstelt um, makes this argument in his book. It's called Gospel Fluency. I love this book, and I recommend it to people all the time. In it, he writes this. Too often when giving people answers to their questions or solutions to their problems, we give them something other than Jesus. If they're struggling with finances, we give them best budgeting plans. If they're working through relational discord, we teach them communication techniques If they're struggling with doubt, we challenge them to just believe, promising that all will get better if they do. But we fail if we don't give them Jesus. We fail if we don't give them Jesus. Tips, tricks, guilt, shame, even commands and accountability will not change a person. They won't. Jesus will. And it's only when we begin to revel in the beauty of Christ through the good news of the gospel story that we truly begin to change. It's only when we directly start applying our, in our heart uh, in these difficult situations, when we're entangled by sin, pain, or, or doubt, it's only when we apply the gospel to them that transformation truly happens. 
I haven't been able to hear over the last uh, few weeks what you've been talking about or, or, or preaching, but I hear that you're doing a series about keeping your eyes on God. Chronicles 20, verse 12, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. I love that. I love that. Because as hard as it is to pursue the mission that God has kept us here to accomplish, growing up, becoming disciples who make disciples, doing the work of the ministry, building up the church, all the while while dealing with literally the world as our, as our enemies and the spiritual forces of darkness as our adversaries seeking to destroy the work of God, as hard as all of this is, we may feel lost, like we don't know what to do, but we will not stop looking to Jesus. We won't stop looking to Jesus. We will not stop pointing each other back to Jesus. We will keep our eyes firmly fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith. How do you answer God's call on your life and give yourself to the growth of other people? How do you give yourself to the growth of your brothers and sisters in Christ? You learn how to speak the truth in love. You speak the gospel and you do it well. You learn to use the gospel like a surgeon uses a scalpel to cut into someone's life and provide specific solutions for their deepest needs in the moment. If you do this, I guarantee you, you're gonna see remarkable things happen by the Spirit of God in the lives of others. The gospel truly is the power of God and salvation. I just want to draw your attention again, although I've said it a thousand times to this point, this is a church-wide mandate. This is a job for all of us. You don't need, okay, you don't need a theology degree. You don't need 30 years of walking with Jesus before you're ready to do this. You just need to love him and love the gospel. Be changed by it yourself and let that love pour out of you to encourage other people. And that's why he ends the passage the way he does. He's gonna repeat this four times. Ready? Listen. The whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You get the point? It's all of us. It's all of us. It's all of us. It's all of us. It just can't be a few of us. It has to be all of us. This is the kind of stuff, personally, that I dream about I dream about this stuff. I mean, imagine a gospel culture so deeply saturated in your church that it would be impossible to come here on a Sunday morning and not have someone address you personally about some sort of pain or sin or brokenness in your life and apply the gospel to it in a way that you walk out those doors transformed. That's what it should be like when we meet together on a Sunday morning. Imagine a place where nobody is left enslaved to sin, but have brothers and sisters who guide them in the gospel to freedom. Or imagine a family that's so in love and on fire for Jesus that the gospel doesn't just be, it isn't just something that changes us in here, but that this building can't contain it and it explodes out into your relationships with your neighbors and your friends and your family who don't know Jesus and we see more and more and more people coming to bow the knee before Christ. 
Those dreams sometimes, when we speak about them, seem impossible. We get discouraged. But they're not. Because the gospel is the power of God to salvation. And God wants to do this. This is not something, something that we have to twist his arm to do. He's doing it. And he wants to do it through you. And he wants to do it through me. That's our goal. That's our mandate. And it's something our great and powerful Savior can achieve. So let's not stand in the way. This is my, my plea to you. Let's not stand in the way of what God is accomplishing in, in his kingdom. Instead, let's be gospel-driven people, faithful in the work of the ministry, and building up the church in every way. And I hope that's your heart as a church family moving forward. I don't know what's next for you or where God is going to take you, but I do know this. If you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and you live lives centered around gospel, love, and exhortation, you will continue to be a vital church growing up in the things of the Lord and being faithful in the work of the ministry, and that's what matters. Ultimately, if you're trying to grow up the wrong way, and this may be you this morning, if you're trying to grow up the wrong way, and it's just going to leave you, and it just feels tiresome. You feel exhausted. You feel burdened. You feel burnt out. It's because you don't have your eyes fixed on the gospel. It's because you don't have your eyes fixed on Jesus. If you're learning to center yourselves around the gospel daily, the words of Jesus here become such a sweet reality in, in the gospel of Matthew. This is the way we're meant to feel as we walk with Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't know about you, but I don't always feel that way. I hear that, and sometimes I challenge it in my heart. Are you, are you serious, Jesus? Your burden is easy? Your yoke is light? I feel like I'm dying here. And if that's you, I would just invite you, please, return to the gospel. Return to the grace of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Your life is not about accomplishing a list. It's not about being impressive to God or impressive to others. It's about throwing yourself upon his grace and seeing him bigger and better every day. That's what your life is about. So come back to the gospel and learn to bring others with you. Let's pray. Father God, um, these are big words, they're not small. Uh, we can't do these things because our, our, our nature is so inclined against these things. We are so inclined to be prideful people who think we can do things on our own and we don't need grace and we don't need help and we don't need the things that you have provided. But God, every time we go there, every time we live in that place, we fall. Every time we live in that place, it's impossible for us to get out of the holes that we've dug. And I just pray 
that you would awaken in us something different. That we wouldn't look at our sin without taking a look at the cross. We wouldn't look at our sin without taking a look at the empty tomb, but that we would be filled with the power of the gospel so that we can face life and, 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 and sin and pain and struggle and doubt. We can face it all knowing that you are faithful to your promises and you have given us everything in Christ Jesus. Fill us with the gospel, I pray. Don't let us leave without it. Do this now, God, we ask in Jesus' name.